I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. And if this is your first time hearing the show, it's a simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who shaped who we are, and we want to hear about the educators who inspired you and the educators in your community who deserve a spotlight. Every educator we have on this podcast, whether teacher, coach, or professor, is nominated by the folks who listen. So please be a part of our show and tell us about the person who comes to your mind. Email us with their nominations at teacherslounge at niu.edu. Today on the show, we're bringing you an episode unlike we've ever had, I think. We're diving into some really heavy, emotional topics today with Dr. Katie Billman. Until her retirement during the pandemic, she was a professor of pastoral ministry, pastoral theology, and director of the Master of Divinity program at the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Billman taught many classes, including a class called Caring for the Dying and Bereaved. The students did a lot of things. They were asked to write their own eulogy, and they were asked to to write a letter to loved ones, but they would most want their their closest loved ones to know. We had such a good conversation, but the themes are really weighty, so we decided to divide it into two smaller parts. Again, we talk about death, loss, and grief, so if that's not something you want to hear about, it's totally fine, but just a content warning. All right, let's start the show. Before we talk to Katie, we have a few more stories we want to share. For one, Yours Truly was featured on NPR stations across the country this week for a story I wrote about the substitute teacher crisis. You know, school systems across the nation continue to face teacher shortages, we know that, but the most pressing appears to be a lack of substitutes. And so in Illinois, districts are holding one-day training sessions to get substitutes into the classroom as soon as possible. Some schools are so desperate for substitutes, they've tried recruiting parents. Others have asked local police officers and firefighters to come into the classroom. In New Mexico, they've even called in the National Guard. In Illinois, a short-term substitute license was created in direct response to the shortage. It allows potential teachers who only have an associate degree or 60 hours of college credit to become substitutes in public schools. Mark Kleisner heads the group West 40, a service center for dozens of school districts near Chicago. He says the short-term option is a lifeline because the shortage in this state is worse than ever. I'm hearing social workers covering English classes. You know, it's like we're not serving our kids well, and we don't really have a choice. Our data point this year was over 2,000 educator openings were either unfilled or they were filled by someone not qualified. Sonia Spalding is a professional learning specialist at West 40. She's trying to address the shortage by offering prospective substitutes an online crash course in teaching before they step into the classroom. We are here to provide you the state-approved short-term substitute training. I'm sort of the captain of today's ship, and I've got a wonderful crew that's going to help you get in the air and land to your prospective locations. We've got This recent Zoom call is filling up with dozens of faces as Spalding gets started. Some people watch on their phones while walking down hallways at work. Many have experience working with kids. Others just need work. Depending on the school, the pay can range from $100 to over $200 a day. With the program, substitutes pay $50 to get their license, take the training, get a background check, and can be in the classroom the very next day. It's a quick turnaround, but there's a high level of confidence that these are people who have a connection with the community, and they really want to step up and support the students in this time. Nicole Mister is one of the hundreds of new short-term substitutes they've already trained this year. Like most, she's interested in teaching because of her connection to education. She has kids in school and works at an education nonprofit. 
She says while her first day subbing was difficult, the one-day training actually did help her in the classroom. It was nerve-wracking, but Dr. Spaulding was able to really give us some great pointers. She really just told us to, you know, go in with an open mind and... She gave us so many resources online, so it was really able to help. But some worry about lowering the barrier to get into the classroom. Desiree Carver-Thomas is a researcher and policy analyst at the Learning Policy Institute. It's certainly a huge concern, especially when you hear stories of students who've had, you know, a rotating cast of substitute teachers all year in their math class. It begs the question of, you know, how much learning can really happen when the person in the classroom you know, may not have subject matter competency. But she says in many states, substitutes aren't required to do any training at all. So anything is a positive. And when so many schools can't find any subs, it's better than canceling classes. But she and others say the long-term solution to the substitute teacher shortage isn't only about substitutes. It's about hiring enough credentialed teachers to fully staff classrooms. One final story before our conversation with Katie. Educators have been speaking out all year and even before then about extreme student behavior in the classroom. It's coming as schools like Rockford say they need to completely overhaul how students are disciplined. Here's the story on how those issues are intertwined. If you go to your local school board meeting, chances are you'll hear students and teachers talk about how these issues need to change right now. The Calp teacher Amanda Angelo detailed a laundry list of things she's seen in her classes this year. Having to teach over screaming children that can last for hours. Students taking off clothes during an escalation so they are completely naked. Angelo makes it if clear that these issues have been around since long before COVID-19 upended education. But Rachel Medeiros, our Rockford Middle School teacher, says since then, it's gotten much worse. I'm telling you right now from my experiences, we have a mental health crisis in our schools. These children are acting out in ways that we have never seen. There is violence. We can't do enough to help them. Schools with limited support staff are wrestling with how to address behavior issues with a focus on mental health and equity. Racial equity is something Rockford Junior Kanaya Parks-Collins says is completely missing from how teachers and administrators discipline what they see as poor behavior. People of color's anger shouldn't be taken and treated as a threat. Anger is a form of expression that is always allowed and welcome until it's coming from a person of color. Parks Callen also highlighted the district's sky-high suspension and expulsion rates. Being taken away from your learning environment or social environment doesn't help students understand their behavior needs to be corrected or it doesn't show them how to correct their behaviors. It just shows them that the school doesn't care about their education, so why should they? Jessica Lawrence just finished her first year as executive director of student services at Rockford Public Schools. She knows Rockford's discipline policies, which often lead to suspensions, have not supported their students. In 2020, Kennedy Middle School in Rockford handed out more out-of-school suspensions than any middle school in Illinois. Auburn High School was in the top three for in-school suspensions, and 64% of those students were black. Lawrence says it starts with the district overhauling its student code of conduct. We needed to work with students to improve behavior before exclusion. And then we needed to replace our over-reliance on suspensions. And we need to identify additional supports for students. RPS recently held three community meetings to get feedback on what they need to fix. Overwhelmingly, they heard about the need to reserve exclusionary discipline as the last resort. Among other changes, the district is reducing the total number of days students can be suspended. In the current system, if a student gets in a fight, 
They could be gone for over 10 days, but now the maximum is three days total. Lawrence says community feedback has already shifted how some of the district's discipline rules are laid out. Being a little bit more clear on the front end about what interventions are, making sure that we are putting really at the front of all of this why we're doing this and what, why it's good for kids. But a new student code of conduct is just one piece. What happens next? How will they make sure the rules are implemented equitably, especially when they know so many students and community members have lost their trust? Dr. Tiffany Brunson is Rockford's chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer, and she says it starts with action by the administration. Training and support for our teachers and staff, because they're the ones who are with the students every single day. So equipping them with more tools, how to do interventions, how to connect with students on a different level. So that's where the, the real hard yeah. work, that's where we're really going to be focusing. The district's goals also include, quote, disrupting the predictability of academic outcomes based on zip code. To make a change that big, she says they'll also have to prioritize equity in other areas, too, like restorative justice and diverse hiring practices. Brunson says the work will be ongoing and there will be a committee, including community members, that meets regularly to discuss trends with discipline and behavior. Now, without any further ado, my conversation with the wonderful Dr. Katie Billman, starting off by talking about her experience teaching remotely at the onset of the pandemic. I cried after many of my classes. I, I had uh, gotten some certification to do online teaching. I never taught an online class and my subject matters, I always felt was more conducive to in-person learning if at all possible. So I was teaching and having a pretty great time actually my last semester, my last, my favorite class, Caring for the Dying and Bereaved. And then everything shut down. And the students, you know, they're supposed to do interviews. So they, they were supposed to go actually meet with people in person. So we all had to learn how to do things differently. And it was, something always went wrong with my technology. I, you know, <laughs> the class would be waiting for their link and it, it, I, I didn't know yet. So anyway, anyway, it was horrible, <laughs> it was horrible. <laughs> I've been interviewing people remotely for the last two years, and I'm still finding new technical difficulties to run into. So, like, you're not alone, and it's still happening to all of us. <laughs> yeah, you know, just the thing about how you connect with people. Like, right now, I feel like I'm looking at you because I'm looking at your face large on my screen. But I don't know if it looks like I'm looking at you because the camera's at a different angle. So... The whole thing about connection, how do you navigate that? I, I think I'm looking at you, but it probably looks like I'm not looking at you, you know? I know. I think about these things all the time. And you know what's really interesting is that, you know, sometimes when you do these calls, you know, it's best when it's just the both of us and we can see each other's faces. But sometimes you go in and, and teachers deal with this all the time, especially when you're teaching younger kids, where you come in and you're showing your face and then all the kids turn off their screens. So then you're just talking to blank squares and trying to connect with that. And if both screens are off and you just and nobody can see anybody, then it actually works pretty well because then it's just like you're talking on the phone. But I found that the hardest thing to do is when my face is showing and they can see me, but I can't see them. All of a sudden, I forget how to talk. All of the cues are off. It's so weird. Yes, yes. But teaching is so relational, and and if you can't if you can't see or even it's harder. I think some people can do it. They have really great auditory skills, 
and can hear even in the inflection of a voice something that's different. Is this connecting, is it not? But I've always been such a visual learner and I rely a lot on visual cues. So if I can't see a response, it feels like there isn't a response. Like On some level you get used to it, but again, like if, if it showed up and I had to do this where it was just my, cause then it's like, you know, you're always kind of looking back at yourself when you're on a Zoom call. And then it's just, you're making direct eye contact with yourself while trying to talk to someone else. And that is alarming. That's scary. <laughs> I know. I've tried, like, I've got you on full speaker view and I'm just a little box up there and I'm trying not to look at myself because it freaks me out. And, you know, yeah, yeah. Were you able ever to get uh, to say any of the goodbyes that you wanted to? Did you ever get any of that resolution at the end of your, at the end of your year? Well, my students were so precious. Um, I emailed each of them a personal letter to talk about how they wanted to navigate some things and whether they wanted personal phone calls, whether they wanted. But at the end of the class, I know they so much didn't work the way I dreamed and didn't work at all. But um, the students, I think, could tell how hard I was trying, you know. Yeah. And so the last day of class, and they knew I was supposed to retire, but, you know, none of the retirement rituals would happen. You know, no banquet, no farewell, no nothing. So they all made little cards. Um, I love you, Dr. Bowman, you know, thank oh. you, Dr. Bowman. And, and so I'm looking at the screen and it's like a Jeopardy board, you know, the Je or not Jeopardy, uh, <laughs> oh, Hollywood Squares. You know, they all look like Hollywood Squares and they all have these little notes and one of them did a poem and the other one, you know, did a blessing. Yeah, they were very sweet. That was very healing for me because it had been such a hard way to end my teaching <laughs> career. Yeah, going out with a bang for sure. Right? It was more like a whimper, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating you know I, I've had so many conversations with teachers throughout the pandemic and you're always thinking about how like it's up and like we've been talking about it's upended the social fabric of everything like schools going remote you know work and and church too right and the thing I've been so interested in is are we able to like look back on this time and be like okay what did we learn and like what are some like silver linings that we can take with us to improve things, you know, after the pandemic is over. Cause I think it would like, it feels like a missed opportunity to just go through this entire, both like tragic and also like, again, completely almost like a soft reset on society yes. and then go back to the way things were exactly like something has to change. Like we had to have learned something. I'm curious, like, what do you think? And I, I guess it could be about education. It could be about a church. What do you think? Like, are there things that we can learn from this? You know, it's so interesting that you asked that question because I'm reading this amazing book right now. Oh, it's right here. Wait, one second. Go grab it. It's called Julian of Norwich, Wisdom in a Time of Pandemic and Beyond. And it's, written, it's written by Matthew Fox. And it's, a, and, you know, Julian of Norwich um, lived her whole life uh, amid the bubonic plague. It, it, her the, whole life? Her whole life because the pandemic, the bubonic plague, I think it began uh, in her area. She was in Norwich, England. It first 
hit there when she was seven. It lasted for a few years, then it came back. And so this book is about um, how a fox is looking at some of what she wrote during that time and, and, and getting seven lessons for live and, and just a couple of them that are, I have it I'm about halfway through the book right now, but a couple of them were really meaningful to me and actually have to do with teaching and learning. I think the first one is called facing the realities of things without denial. She called it facing the darkness. And so how do you, how do you not minimize or well, happy brushstroke on things that were really hard um, without being overwhelmed by them? Because she's a very joyful person, actually. She's a very, very joyful mystic. Um, but the second thing was about not taking for granted anything, your breath from one moment to the next you know, what is beautiful in the world around us. And that, I think more than anything else, that reminder not to take anything for granted. If we could, I, I know it's hard to live in that, you know, we do take things for granted after a while, but having lost so much, um, to live out of that sense of gratitude and not taking one single gift for granted is one of the lessons. Yeah, and then there, there, there are there's there seven, um, and then there's a chapter for each of the, the lessons. But it's it's been good for me to read it because it it you know some things were a reminder of things I already believed, but just needed to be reminded of again. Yeah, I think that like for me, it's interesting you bring that up. The first one that you mentioned, one of the first lessons. It speaks to me because, like, right now, I feel like I, I was—I was just talking to my dad about this the other day, of how to balance being realistic and confronting the darkness, right? Confronting the realities of the world you live in, while also, like, retaining hope and optimism at the same time. And like, how do you do that? Because I found myself like, you know, the more that uh, you know, people are lifting mask mandates and feel like things are, are maybe headed in a direction that's good, that I like, like I've been burned too many times, right? Like I, we, we've we been uh, turning the corner on the pandemic too many times where like I, I have to like see it concretely. Like I can't, I can't live off of the, the hope of projection at this point that like in three weeks things will get better. But I have to be like, okay, so I'm, I'm feeling a little skeptical right now and I understand the realities, but how do I do that? And also still be optimistic and, and still feel hope for the future. <laughs> yes, that's such an important uh, tension that you're describing, Peter. One of the ways I look at it too, is that it, it has to do with uh, where that, that sort of boundary is between the risks that you're willing to take because mm. you need you need to be able to and teachers I think are really struggling with this right now. There, uh, there's I read a wonderful article in the New York Times. It was very nuanced about how there have been some real costs to masks for children and for I sure. mean for everybody. But some of what we talked about when we started chatting this morning is that you lose. Uh, some nuance, you lose full 
Um, you know, if if ninety five percent of communication is nonverbal, and you can't see most of a person's face, what does that do to human communication? And it does it does affect things. So how do you balance the the concern for safety and the concern for community and connection? So it's it's really complicated and. You know, sometimes in this polarized world, we tend to make things so it's either this or it's that. And we don't talk about the like what either raises the tension. It's how do you yeah. navigate the tension? Even acknowledging that it is hard and that it is complicated. Well, yeah, this was so much a part of the class I taught in Caring for the Dying. Mm. How do you... Um, yeah, there's so many uh, complicated questions that aren't easily resolved by you always do this or you always do that. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that class too. And because it's something that really made in, in kind of indelible mark on the people that, that nominated you for this show. And I was thinking again, as it relates to the pandemic, when you're kind of just living through a time of grief for so many people. I was curious if you had like, you know, a, a practice or advice or a tool, a lesson, something that you think could help people who are, are trying to just be there for someone who might be going through loss or some kind of grief. Well, we spent a lot of time in class talking about the power of listening that Grief is not something you get over. I've been very critical of stage theories, uh, which one therapist has called the cages of stages, sort of like you, that you're going to go, you're gonna start here. And of course, to be fair, um, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was originally developed in her work with the dying, this idea of the five stages, that lead to death. She never meant it to be stair step or linear. She it was more nuanced. It was more of a spiral. You go back and forth and so on. But I, I think it's it's more liberating to think of um, living through grief as it's more like a, a a river or think of something that constantly moves and ebbs and flows and you can feel kind of frozen in place. That can be part of what it's like to feel grief and feel stuck and trapped but that it's it's the process of how we actually come to story or describe our experience at any one point in time and having someone help us to do that to name the nuances of it is to actually invite people to richly describe um that the facets of of loss that they're going through because loss is so multi faceted it has so many threads to it yeah it's not linear you don't just start off at one point and then just get better progressively right right yeah yeah it's and when anniversaries come and you, you relive things maybe not quite in the same way but you, I know my husband the anniversary is my husband's death is coming up in a few days and you know there'll be uh, ways that I will want to intentionally return, remember, um, give thanks for his life um, through what I, I think rituals are really helpful for people. Um, 
I know that the first Christmas uh, uh, after Jim died, I went to a, um, one of those blue Christmas services that churches have. And mostly I didn't like it because it was so many words. People kept reading things and kept talking. But the place in the service that I felt that I was so glad I was there and I was actually able to feel, get in touch with the, uh, both the sorrow and the gratitude was when we were um, invited to light a candle. And it was that action, that getting up out of my chair and moving and lighting a candle. And it wasn't just all about words. It was about do, doing and um, moving. And that was so meaningful to me. And then that, that kind of uh, closed off part between my, um, what an old pastoral care teacher used to call your gizzard. <laughs> <laughs> and and my head you know kind of op opened up and I could feel all the way in my body you know the what I'd actually gone to church to feel and that was to feel connected again even if it hurts you know to feel connected and not not um, frozen and not numb I didn't I, I didn't want to be numb and it was only that that helped me not feel numb so I think helping people whether some people are artistic and they draw and they make memory books and collages and some people are, are musical and, and singing helps and some people tell stories and some people like candles and they're all different kinds of ways to be connected um, but to just have some company and help in doing that I think is really important. Wow well thanks for that and I'm sorry to hear about that loss in your life too. It affected how I taught the yeah. class. Um, I, I'm sure how could it not? Right? How could it not? Yeah. One of the reasons uh, in in the class on caring for the dying and bereaved, we um, the students did a lot of things. They were asked to write their own eulogy, and they were asked to to write a letter to loved ones that they would most want their their closest loved ones to know. And uh, they were asked to actually uh, fill out the power of the durable power of attorney for healthcare and a document uh, called the five wishes um, about, you know, different wishes they had about if they had, had to face their own death. I did that for two reasons. One is that in all the literature about uh, working with grieving people, if, if the person who wants to help hasn't faced this grief that comes with contemplating your own, the loss of your own life and the relationships that you have and the things that you cherish, how can you be fully present with someone? How can you have the courage to be with other people if you haven't faced how hard it is for them? So part of it was just that's how people who are, are educated to deal with grief as part of the educational process. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about stuff like writing your own eulogy and what you find that brings out of your students. And it sounds like on some level, it is kind of equipping them to try to learn to swim in those waters, right? When it's something that can be very, very deep if, and then if you're not prepared for it 
Yes. I don't know how you'd be able to do it. Yes. And the not prepared for it is part of the challenge as an educator in a class like that, because I think teachers are talking a lot more these days in a way they never did when I started teaching. Some, some teachers call it content warnings. Some, some teachers call it trigger warnings. What kinds of things can you unwittingly do in the classroom that re-trigger trauma? So, um, so I, I would always start my class in uh, caring for the dying and bereaved. I would give the, the students an online survey before class started. And I would ask them to talk about, I would give them a whole range of different kinds of losses and how many had um, experienced this or that. And then I asked them about what created for them a, the, a sense that they could be brave in the classroom, what, what things would undermine being able to fully participate um, would be frightening or, or off-putting. Um, you know, uh, so I, I, I pulled one out thinking about our conversation this morning. And, you know, I think I had an assumption, especially when I was working with younger students, that they wouldn't have experienced a lot of terrible loss, but 16 out of 18 members of a class I taught about three years ago, 12 had experienced the death of a grandparent, 12 had experienced the death of a member of their family or extended family, two had experienced the death of a sibling, uh, four had experienced the death of a parent, um, seven experienced the death of a loved one because of accident or natural disaster, um, five had experienced the suicide of someone close to them, um, and on and on. Uh, three had experienced the death of a child, which is one of the hardest, you know, most catastrophic losses. And five in the class had a loved one who was either uh, facing, uh, had a serious illness, life-threatening illness, or was actively dying. So this is my class, right? So the first task was just to unearth who are we? What are we bringing to this experience? What are our vulnerabilities? And how can we care for one another through talking about these things? You know, I would say to the class, you know, everything about this syllabus is a content one. We're talking about some of the most painful things. So what commitments can we make to each other to be able to do this work together? And whether it's, you know, if you, you know, having a classroom that's safe for tears or having a classroom where you can get up and leave the room. Now, of course, at Zoom, you could just click off your audio or you could click off it. But in, that, in those days, you, you know, people are sitting there. If you feel overwhelmed or you're starting to feel like you are coming unglued, can you without judgment, being judged, walk out of a classroom to take care of yourself? Um, can you ask if somebody will go with you um, or choose to go by yourself, in which case people are gonna follow you out and badger you about why you left, um, try to get you to come back in. I mean, uh, I had to, you know, we had to think about all of these things and, and the, the important thing was to think about them together. Um, to make decisions as a class, even with the assignment to do all of the, the five wishes and everything, 
uh, people did not have to actually sign the documents or finalize them. They just had to have the experience of doing them. And people had, um, if, if people said, I can't talk to my, my, my closest loved ones or my parents, but something's going on at home and I can't have this conversation with them right now. They could talk to somebody else. So, I mean, there was always, you know, how you, you, you know, you always have to kind of modify things so that they don't hurt or damage people. Um, but, but it's impossible to eliminate the pain that comes from, you know, actually doing some of these things um, that you, but, but what kept me doing it was all the students who wrote these beautiful letters and said what it was like to actually talk to their parents or their spouse together and that they took steps that they wouldn't have taken had they not had that assignment. Yeah, I'm sure in some ways for some people, it's almost a shortcut into conversations they really wish they would have been able to have otherwise, that it kind of gives you, you know, for lack of a better word, an excuse to get to those topics. Yes, and that's where the life of the teacher impacts the content of the course. I, I never used to do all of those things in my mm. class, but uh, I had a, a daughter, um, my, my son was, uh, and his fiance found out July, four months before their big wedding that she had a metastatic breast cancer, stage four. And they made the decision to go ahead with the wedding and it was a beautiful wedding. They had some really good months together, but she died um, about a week she died exactly a week before her 29th birthday and a month uh, and a week before their first wedding anniversary. And so that taught me as a family, we weren't prepared for any of the practical questions. We hadn't had those conversations. We hadn't talked about how did she want her body to be cared for after death or cremation, burial. Uh, we didn't talk about, you know, any of those practical, practical things. And sometimes you can't talk about those things because the person who's dying isn't able to face a death and isn't able to have the conversation. But even the gentle invitation, if, if you project your, your death out there 10 years or so, what would you, what do you think at this point you would want? What kind of choices would you make? And I would give the students those choices too. You don't have to imagine your death is tomorrow. Um, imagine that you, you live to 90 and write the letter that you imagine you would write to your grandchild. I encourage people, project your life. What kind of life would you like to live? Would you like to live to 105? Project it out, you know, and who, who do you imagine would speak about you and what would you want them to say about you? Um, yeah, you know, it's got to be such an interesting challenge for you as an educator to like create and like foster that kind of environment where people are comfortable having conversations about these things just like on a Tuesday afternoon. And obviously, you know, this is like graduate level theology and, and religious people, but also just be like, you know, it's cold outside. I'm going to grab a bagel. I'm going to come to class and we're going to discuss my, you know, mortality. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I, I really, um, boy, I, 
I appreciate and love the students that I worked with. They were wonderful human beings. They are wonderful human beings. Um, and, and they want, I mean, what I had going for me as a teacher is that they chose to be in that class. They didn't have to be. And I asked the students, um, well, I try to remember how I worded the, you know, something like truth be told, I'm taking this class because, and then I had yeah. a bunch of options. And one of them was, you know, if I'm being utterly truthful, I don't really want to take this class, but I think I ought to. And I really applauded those students the most in my heart because, you know, they said to themselves, if I'm going to do this work, if I'm going to be a, a pastor, a good pastor, I have to do this work, even if I don't want to, even if I dread it, um, even if it's going to kick up all this crap that I've experienced in my life that I don't want to think about, um, but they do it. And, and that's amazing. I mean, they're highly motivated. They didn't, they weren't forced force marched to do this. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, well, of course I had going for me too, that they were, most of them were going to do clinical pastoral education that summer. Yeah. <laughs> so they knew. So they were, they were facing this stuff coming yeah, soon. Right? Yeah. You know what? It was practical. Sometimes when students would say to me, should I take this class or not? I would say, well, what kind of learner are you? Um, do you, are you the kind of learner who likes to, if you're going into a, you know, a body of water, kind of wade in little by little and have a, you know, um, or do you just want to just jump off the diving board into the deep end of the pool? And some, some students actually, I, I just want to jump off into the deep end of the pool. I'll just go to CPE and yeah, that's how I'll learn. And that was fine. I mean, I didn't ever try to talk anybody into taking the class. Thanks for listening to Teacher's Lounge. We'll have part two with Katie next episode. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on the show. It's how we get great guests like Katie. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing this podcast, please do subscribe, leave us a rating, share it, whatever you could do. It does help us get even more teachers, even more perspectives on the show. And please subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter if you want to keep up to date with everything having to do with the show. You can find a link to do that on this episode's page on WNIJ.org. A big thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs for the awesome music you hear every single episode. A big thank you to Spencer Tritt for our Teacher's Lounge logo. And I have been your host, Peter Medlin, and I'll be back again soon with more Teacher's Lounge. See you later.